Does anyone have anything in particular on your mind that you would like to ask a question about or to make a, initiate a discussion of? Yes. Yeah. <coughs> so I've been reading that um, Mahayana Buddhism stresses um, that an enlightened being is a bodhisattva or, or, or someone who is intent on enlightenment and who, that, that bodhisattva is a big concept in Mahayana Buddhism and that in, in the Theravada tradition, arhant is um, stressed more and I'm not clear that the distinction between an arhant and a bodhisattva is all that big, but it's a appears to have been enough to create this, these two schools. Would you talk? Yes, uh, let me clarify that a little bit. Uh, the two schools, the, the, uh, the Theravada and the Mahayana, both have in common that there is a first stage of enlightenment and then there's progressive enlightenment after that. And in the Theravada, the, uh, the first stage of enlightenment is stream entry, which is the same thing in the Mahayana. Both, there's no difference there. And the Theravadins use the word arhat to refer to the highest possible level of spiritual development. You are a Buddha is an arhat, and arhat is a Buddha. They are identical. Um, the where the Mahayana <coughs> begins to depart, or, or historically began to depart from the Theravada, was with the idea that rather than seeking enlightenment for your own sake, you should be seeking enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Okay? <coughs> now, in both the Theravada and the Mahayana, uh, the person we call the Buddha, the awakened one, Siddhartha Gautama, is called the Samasam Buddha, and that's what you know, in, in here. And Samasam means the, the highest of the high. Now, in, in its original meaning, it's not that a Samasam Buddha is the slightest bit more enlightened than any other Buddha, any other Arhat, because Arhat and Buddha are exactly the same in that, in that tradition. That, and a Samasam Buddha is, isn't any more enlightened because it's not possible to be more enlightened than Arhat. But a Samasam Buddha is somebody who is uniquely capable of teaching the Dharma to very large numbers of people. Right? And that's what sets him apart. Um, later on in both traditions, to answer the question of, well, what makes this guy so unique compared to the rest? They took the existing doctrine of reincarnation and they said, well, he spent a hundred million lifetimes perfecting his virtue so that when he was born this time, he would not only be a Buddha, but he would be a Buddha that had this unique ability to teach others and 
Buddhist, the beginning of Buddhism. That little, that's a little digression, but okay, so we have the tradi tradition begins to diverge when one school is saying, um, rather than just seeking enlightenment for your own sake, we should all be doing what the Buddha did, seeking enlightenment so that we are able to guide others to become enlightened. This is the bodhisattva idea, and the name they gave, gave to that was bodhicitta, the, which means, bodhicitta literally just means a mind set on becoming enlightened. You have bodhicitta. Mm -hmm. But in the Mahayana, they made it mean, they added to that. It's a being with a mindset on enlightenment for the sake of leading <laughs> other beings to enlightenment, or for the sake of other beings. And so the bodhisattva ideal arose. And in order to reconcile some logical and philosophical problems, they, instead of saying that arhats and Buddha have the same level of enlightenment, in the Mahayana they came up with this new, uh, this new description of what an arhat was. And an arhat's not a completely enlightened being, only a Samasambuddha is a completely enlightened being. That's a strictly Mahayana doctrine. But what it allowed them to do, and this was why it came into being, it allowed them to point to the non-Mahayana, who they gave the derogatory name Hinayana, lesser vehicle. Okay. It allowed them to point to these others and say, the highest goal that you aspire to is a lesser form of enlightenment, and it's inherently selfish. <laughs> so that's that's where it comes from. So, um, in other words, the Mahayana Arhat is not the same as the Theravada Arhat. The Mahayana Arhat has been redefined to make it possible to define a higher level of enlightenment, complete enlightenment, total enlightenment, the kind of enlightenment that the Buddha had. But then what comes from this is that in the Mahayana, everyone should aspire to become a Samasambuddha. Everybody should aspire to achieve that special ability that allows you not to help a few other people around you to become enlightened, but that you will have the same kind of impact on the world that the Buddha did. And this leads into a whole other cosmology in the Mahayana that does not exist in the Theravada, which is that there are all these Buddha realms. There have been many Buddhas in the past, and they, and they still exist, in each in their own Buddha realm. And there are Buddha realms in which there are future Buddhas who are actually already enlightened, but they're just waiting for their turn and their time to come. And so, what started out, I think, as a wonderful idea became doctrinally more complex. And, and so, you end up sort of with what you see now. What was your original question? There was some, I think I let that slip in my long-winded explanation. There's, there was some point you were oh, asking about. Oh, I, maybe, it, maybe it's the point that or the, or the the suspicion that that enlightenment 
that there follows naturally from enlightenment a desire to up to hold up all all beings to yes. that it seems like that would just go hand in hand yes exactly okay very good i'm glad you mentioned that because that that's and the other thing you mentioned you, you said so is a bodhisattva the same as an arhat yeah, I, I, I'm not. Uh, I, so, I realize that there's a distinction. Yeah, well, well, actually, it's interesting how those doctrines have developed. Um, you know, in, in that regard, well, my mind's just slipping. What, do, what did we have just a minute ago that we were going to talk about? Th that one, that enlightenment, that it follows naturally from enlightenment. Oh, yeah. That it, one would want the well-being. According to the Theravada definition of an arhat. An arahat is somebody who has completely overcome the inherent sense of being a separate self. Mm -hmm. An arahat is a being who is completely and totally aware of the interconnectedness of all beings, and there is no separation between me and you. And the, the, the result of that view is that, of course, an arahat has no self at all. The idea of a selfish arahat mm -hmm. is a total contradiction. Mm -hmm. And when a person becomes an arahat, since they have no sense of self and they have, they know that that they are interconnected with everyone else, then it automatically comes from that that, that every thought, word, and action is for the benefit of all beings, which are the imaginary parts of the whole. So, in the Theravada definition, <clears throat> to be an arahat, you you cannot be an arahat without being dedicated to the enlightenment of all beings. It's just automatic because you know that there is no separation. As to whether a bodhisattva is an arahat. As I say, in the Mahayana, they redefined arahat as some selfish kind of enlightenment that makes a person mm -hmm. free from suffering and happy, but still doesn't know that they're not a separate self. And so, uh, because in the original doctrines, it said that, that to, to become an arahat, is the end of the path. There's nothing past that. Then the Mahayana redefined it as Arahat's now this little side trip, side path, and a Bodhisattva does his best to avoid becoming an Arahat because it means he can't go on and become a Samasambuddha. <laughs> so. Let's split some hairs. What's that? Let's split some hairs. Oh, let me tell you that, you know, if you've ever, if you're familiar with medieval Christianity and how many <laughs> angels can dance on a pin, those folks had nothing on the Buddhists. <laughs> nothing at all on the Buddhists. <laughs> yeah. so. And so is it, is it apparent when one studies with a teacher in in the Orient, yeah. Whether that teacher is um, from the Mahayana or the Theravada tradition, is it is it 
But, uh, yeah. But is, it, is that a big difference? It is a, is a major difference, and uh, it is very, yeah, it's a very big difference. And what you'll find in teachers of both traditions is, uh, if they are Asian, is they will teach exactly from their tradition. And not only that, there is not one Theravada. The, the, the Thai Theravada in Buddhism mm -hmm. is a little bit different than Sri Lankan and so on and so forth. In the same way, there's even more divergence between the different Mahayana traditions. Mm -hmm. And Eastern teachers will stick very closely to the doctrines of the school that they've been trained to. Mm -hmm. And I've had the most interesting experience of dealing with brilliant, uh, and I would say, uh, at least somewhat enlightened teachers who, when you bring them up against the things that just start to unravel and don't make sense, are really, really skilled at just deking around them. They know there's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely unmistakable if you bring up these issues that they know that the, that the doctrine, the standard doctrine has a problem here. Mm -hmm. So they are very good at just getting around dealing with that. They will not say something that's in contradiction to the established doctrine. Including the Dalai Lama. Including the Dalai including Lama. The Dalai Lama. Oh, including the Dalai Are, Lama. It's have you met teachers? Have you met any teachers who have gone beyond doctrine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they haven't been Eastern teachers. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you see, this is what's always happened when. When Buddhism in northern India went into Ceylon and it went into Southeast Asia and it went into China, in each of these places, it went into these new areas and there were teachers in these newly forming traditions who, to whom it was clear that there was traditional baggage that just wasn't useful. Mm -hmm. And so they had no hesitation. Like in, in Chinese Buddhism, they throw out a lot of things that are very considered very important in Indian Buddhism. And, and so Buddhism took a form that suited the Chinese people. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened in Sri Lanka, and the same thing happened in, in uh, Burma and Taiwan, and, uh, or not Thai, uh, Burma, Thailand, and places like that. This is how the different forms of Buddha, Buddhism have developed. And this is why you put them side by side, and you'll see that each one holds certain doctrines that are not shared with the other, but they're core doctrines that you find in all of them. The same thing's happening in the West. Buddhism comes to the West, and there are teachers who have no hesitation, I have no hesitation to say, yeah, this is a part of the doctrine, but you know, it makes no sense, and it contradicts this and this and this. And, mm -hmm. you know. and what will probably happen 500 years from now, if the world lasts that long, is there will be some form of American Buddhism that's so steeped in its own doctrines that its teachers will refuse to say that something's not true, even though in their own mind they know it's nonsense. <laughs> and at some point, if one, if one departs from the doctrine farther and farther and farther, then it ceases to be Buddhism at some point. At some point, I would think, and it, and it, well, it starts being what what I see on the web as yeah. non-dualistic 
whatever it, I think that's well and, and this has happened and you know there are there are Buddhist traditions that other Buddhists don't believe are Buddhist traditions mm-hmm. the, the dualistic stuff is the, the Advaita she's talking about yeah. the Advaita is one example that, that you see uh-huh. some Western Buddhists are mingling Advaita together but in some of the things that have been around for thousands of years or at least many many centuries uh, there is in the Pure Land Buddhism there are there is a school that believes that if you chant the name of Buddha you will be you will earn the merit to be reborn in a Buddha heaven where there's a Buddha who has the power to enlighten you and basically it's not it's not possible for somebody to become enlightened in this world so there's no point in trying and people look at that form of Buddhism that's just one form of of one kind of Buddhism called Pure Land. But other Buddhists look at that and they say, well, absolutely not. The whole point of Buddhism is that you can become enlightened in this lifetime, that there is no being, even including a Buddha, who has the magical power to enlighten you, Mm -hmm. and therefore this belief isn't Buddhist. But it's it's a part of Buddhism, nevertheless. And there is uh, the Soka Gakkai, Nichiren sect in Japan, who believes that all of the teachings of Buddha are garbage, that only the Lotus Sutra is the only thing that counts, and the only thing you have to do to achieve enlightenment is to chant the name of the Lotus Sutra. So if you say, if you sit there for a couple hours a day, you and your friends, and go nam yoho ringe kyo over and over again, your enlightenment is guaranteed. But any of these other things are just a waste of time. So... It's very different kinds of Buddhism. Yeah. And Sakagakai is a huge... It's a, it's a huge, huge or, it's a worldwide organization, a lot of followers. Millions and millions of dollars. And hundreds, of, I mean, probably millions of followers. So they don't, they, don't really, they don't really teach the, the Eightfold Path? And no, they don't. They don't, they don't the teach the sutras. They teach the wow. Chinese. What's wow, that's pretty amazing. So, so yeah. Oh, sweetheart, she wants to know Advaita. What's Advaita? Advaita. It's non-dual. It's okay. It's Vedanta is a Hindu system that basically is the idea that we have a true self and Atman, which is really a manifestation of Brahman. And Brahman is sometimes regarded as the supreme being, like God, and that the world and every person in it is being dreamed by Brahman, is a dream of Brahman. And so the Atman, our true self of any person, is identical with Brahman. And the goal of the spiritual path is to achieve this uh, unification of the Atman with Brahman. Okay? And the Vedanta comes in two forms. The dualistic and the non-dual. Or the dual and the non-dual. And the non-dual Vedanta is very, very similar to Buddhism. In the non in the Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual Vedanta, 
nobody would ever think of referring to Brahman as a being or as a creator. Brahman is ultimate reality. Brahman is is suchness. You know, Brahman is the is all of the words that in Buddhism are used to refer to. It. So, so there's not much difference there. And this whole world is an illusion. And as each part of the illusion, our goal is to realize the ultimate truth. So, becoming one with Brahman, Brahman is realizing the ultimate truth. And at at the core of all of the doctrines is all duality is an illusion. There is no two-ness. So anything that seems like self and other is an illusion, very Buddhist. Mind and matter as two separate things is an illusion, so on and so forth. Good and bad. Anything that you see as a duality is part of the illusion that you overcome as a part of the spiritual path. It's very, very similar to Buddhism. As a matter of fact, of, of if there are parts of Buddhism that are hardly recognizable as Buddhist, I'd say of all the non-Buddhist traditions, Advaita Vedanta is almost indistinguishable in its core from the core teachings of Buddhism. And most of the differences that do exist are semantic, and if you look at them closely, they dissolve. And historically, uh, in, the, in the middle period of Buddhism, Advaita and Buddhism had a huge impact on each other. Both of them borrowed heavily from the teachings of each other. So, in that regard, it's not too surprising how similar they are. But I'd be totally comfortable calling myself an Advaitist. No, that, yeah, that was my next question. How... How does one, I mean, at what point did you decide to call yourself a Buddhist? Do you call yourself a Buddhist? I call myself a Buddhist, although sometimes I cringe when I do that. <laughs> sometimes I call myself It's like a, calling oneself a Christian. It, yeah. Yeah, because, it, you know, it's like, you say, I'm a Buddhist, and there's so many different things that people believe are Buddhism, you know, you're... You're inviting them to put all kinds of labels on you that you don't really want to carry, you know. But nevertheless, the teachings of the Buddha himself, if you distinguish between Buddhism as a religion and the Buddha sasana, the teaching of the Buddha himself, I'm totally, I'm totally a Buddhist in terms of the teachings of the Buddha himself. In terms of the different Buddhist religions, and all those other things, not so much. Yeah. I was wondering what the Vedanta is that teaches dualism. What's that? <clears throat> I was wondering about the Vedanta that teaches dualism. Um, well... What is that? I, I don't know. Or well, is it getting too often? It's, uh, I, I don't know a lot about it, except that uh, philosophically, it puts you in a position. I, I'm not totally sure, but I do think Krishna consciousness is a form of dualistic Vedanta. That's uh, yeah. That there is this separation, and there is a reliance on other power, and mm -hmm. you use prayer and ceremony and things like that. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I know they think that. Uh, well, the Vedas say there's three forms of 
God realization, Brahman, which is what you just described, yeah. <coughs> Paramatma, which is God within the heart, mm -hmm. and Bhagavan, which is seeing God as a person in a, in a personal form, yeah. and all of that that goes with that. Right. And of course, they think that's the topmost. <laughs> yeah. But it's just interesting to see where things are, you know, relative to each other. But I, I, what I try to, what I have dedicated my life to is understanding and practicing what the Buddha taught. What the Buddha himself taught, and especially those things that are unique and special to the Buddha. And that's what I try, try to teach. And to greater or lesser degrees, depending on the circumstances and who I'm talking to, I'll go along with other people's views as long as I don't feel like those, one or two things. I have no interest in persuading somebody of something different than what they believe. If it works for you, go for it. If it ever stops working so well for you, come talk to me, maybe there's another way. Okay? The only time is if I feel like somebody has some uncertainty about a belief that they hold to, and I know that that belief is going to stand in the way of their further realization, then I feel, I feel free to give them the opportunity, to give them another point of view, so they have the opportunity to consider that perhaps, perhaps they could shift their view a little bit and experience a richer and more satisfying path. And I will say that all of these different traditions in Buddhism, every one of them has developed truly wonderful things, truly wonderful practices, truly wonderful beliefs. You know, some of the things that come from Zen are so incredibly valuable that anybody on a spiritual path should make use of them. And there are some things, it's even, you know, even the ones, even in the, in the pure land, there are things in the pure land that are so good that everyone should adopt them. So all of these schools have generated things that are of tremendous value. But each one of them also carries a whole lot of other stuff with it. And sometimes that stuff just gets in the way. Are there, <clears throat> are there sources where those kinds of extractions have been compiled? Uh, those things that, that, you know, the kernels of wheat, shall we say? That, that is happening amongst Western Buddhist scholars. Uh. And their writings are incredibly difficult to read. Mm. Mm. Because they, they draw very heavily on Pali and Sanskrit sources because as scholars, every statement they make, they have to prevent, they have to present arguments for it, arguments against it, and rebuttals for the arguments against it. Every mm -hmm. single point they make. And wow. it's, 
So it's really, it's tough reading, but there's a lot of wonderful work being done in that area if you're up to the task. I think it's going to be a while before that stuff gets translated into a form that... that for the laity? Yeah, for the lay uh, person to be able to absorb it. I, I love reading that stuff. It's hard to read, but, you know, it, it, it really helps. It helps to clarify things. You know, if you study these things, if, if you are totally dedicated to a practice the way I am, there are things that come up, and you just don't know exactly what the significance of them. And it's wonderful to find a Western scholar who's gone and analyzed this particular issue from the point of view of several different traditions and compared them and discussed them. But as for what the Buddha himself taught, at one level, it's very simple. You know, and um, it's really worth, I think, presenting and becoming familiar with that in its in its simplest form, um, which the Four Noble Truths does. The Four Noble Truths. Uh, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path of cessation of suffering really incorporates the whole into four manageable divisions. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to keep repeating this till everybody that ever comes to my talk can give it back to me. In a sentence, what did the Buddha teach? Four noble truths. No. <laughs> oh well. No. That there is no real, there's, there's no reality to the self. Suffering, suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering and the end of suffering. Over and over again, when the Buddha was asked, or when somebody asked about what the Buddha, what was, what is this Buddha's dharma here? What is this guy teaching? The answer was, either from his own lips or from others, suffering and the end of suffering. So that, that is in its simplest form. All the other things, the, the, the Four Noble Truths, is an elaboration of that. You know, and the, uh, the non-reality of the, of, of the self, both personal and of the separate self, is an extremely important part of it. But in its simplest form, it's suffering and the end of suffering. But from there, it just, you know, it, it, it grows into all kinds of other things. And to understand the first thing, I, I think is to understand suffering is really important. Because, well, first of all, when the Buddha presented the Four Noble Truths, and he presented the truth of suffering, he said, I'm going to tell you something that you've never heard from anywhere else, anyone else before. And I challenge you to find a book in English on the Four Noble Truths that says something about suffering that, as far as you can tell, everybody must have already known. In other words, most people aren't really getting what the Buddha had to say about suffering. And so, 
I'm going to give you another really easy formula. What did the Buddha say about suffering? He said, pain and pleasure are inevitable, suffering and happiness are optional. That is the truth of suffering. You look into that a little deeper. Would you say it again? Pain and pleasure are inevitable. Living beings experience pain and pleasure. There's no way around it. But suffering and happiness, they're optional. Um, so, and if you, if you think of pain and pleasure as, uh, and suffering and happiness as scalar quantities, I just lost everybody. If you think of them as belonging on a continuum of one thing, that there isn't, that pain isn't a pile of stuff over here and pleasure isn't a pile of stuff over here, but rather you go from extreme pain to no pain, to pleasure, to more to extreme pleasure. They're, they're all in the line. Same thing. Suffering goes from extreme suffering to neutral to extreme bliss and happiness. So you can take that thing and the way I stated it, you can simplify it and say pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And it means the same thing as pain and pleasure are inevitable and, and suffering and happiness are optional since when, suffer, when there is no suffering, there is only happiness. So that's, that is the, the kernel of the, of the truth of suffering. That's something that he said that nobody else had said before. And that, to this day, not very many people understand. Especially the part about suffering being optional. And then the Buddha went on, speaking about suffering, to, and, and here we, we have, pain is dukkha, Dukkha is the word that he used. We use suffering. Okay. There is dukkha that is physical in origin. That's what we call pain. And that's what the Buddha called dukkha dukkha. And then there is suffering, which is the dukkha that is mental in origin. And that's domanasa dukkha. So there's two kinds of thing going on here. You know, there's two kinds of unpleasantness, that that comes from the body and that comes from the mind. And likewise, two kinds of pleasantness that come from the body and that come from the mind. And so then he further broke down the suffering aspect, the part that comes from the mind, the dukkha that comes from the mind, into three kinds. Uh, well, actually, it's a division of all of suffering, but it's real, it's real, it, all of dukkha, but it's real impact is in terms of the mental. Okay. You divide all of dukkha into three kinds. There is that, that kind that is there as a part of human life, and that includes all the physical pain, the dukkha. It also includes the kind of mental suffering that is the result of being a human being. We lose 
something and we grieve for that loss. Somebody dies and we feel grief, is an example. That as a human being, this kind of mental suffering is just your fundamental, basic, everywhere, every, every place kind of suffering. Uh, you lose your job, you, you break your leg, the physical pain causes mental suffering when you have a broken leg. Right? So there is all of the mental suffering that is rooted in the nature of the world and either comes from pain or else it comes from attachment to things of the world. So that's the one kind of suffering. The second kind is the result of impermanence. That accounts for the fact that even when things are going good, they're going to change. Even when you've got what you want, you're going to lose it. That everything is impermanent. The second is the suffering that is due to change. And it's acknowledging that not all suffering is what we usually think of as suffering. When, well, your first bite of chocolate is really, really good. How good is the third piece of chocolate compared to the first? It's not as good, right? Um, you, you fall in love with the person of your dreams. And in the midst of your ecstasy, you begin to worry that you might lose this person. Right? You're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, taking in this incredible splendor, and you know that this is not going to last. So you go and grab your camera and you take as many pictures as you can, during which time you don't really get to appreciate the beauty of the camera because you're looking through a little hole pushing the button. This, all of these things are examples of the suffering of suffering due to change, which often means just simply that even when good things are happening, we don't enjoy them as much as we could because we have attachment and because at some level we know they're going to pass away. So this is a kind of suffering that is always present just due to change. That's the second kind of suffering. The third kind of suffering is, to put it in, in modern terms, is existential suffering. The meaninglessness of everything. The hopelessness of life. In terms of these other two forms of suffering, the first is absolutely inescapable, and the second is fleeting. The second is, is, is due to the fleetingness of things. It, to, to look at life and say, how can I become fully happy? What's going to give my life meaning? The existential kind of suffering comes from the fact that we want security, we want meaning, we want purpose, we want something that we can hold on to and believe in. And ultimately, there is nothing. So that's the third kind of suffering. Did I explain that clearly enough? So you have physical pain. You have this first kind of suffering that's rooted in physical pain and rooted in attachment to things of the world. And the second kind of 
mental suffering that is rooted in the transiency of things. And the third kind of suffering that is rooted in the fact that all of our search for some solid ground to give our life meaning and purpose is, is doomed to fail. So these, these are the sufferings that the Buddha recognized. And he said, and the surprising, wonderful good news that he brought is that only pain is inevitable. The suffering that results from pain and the suffering that results from attachment is optional. You don't have to have it. The suffering due to impermanence is optional. You don't have to have it. The suffering that is is due to the existential situation of being the kind of beings we are and the kind of universe this is, doesn't have to happen. It's optional. That's the truth of suffering. And then he moved on to the second truth, which is the truth of the cause of suffering. Not the cause of pain, it's there, but the cause of suffering. And. It is very simply, I mean, the way that you usually hear it is the cause of suffering is craving. Yeah? I'm sorry, before you move to the second, the cause of suffering, yeah. uh, could you elaborate a little bit more about uh, the third kind of that, you know, the suffering? If we find so hard and try so hard and realize there is no meaning, no purpose, no the solid ground of the meaning of life, how can we get away from that suffering? Yeah, uh, that, okay. that, that's uh, the, okay. and I think that is even huge than than mm-hmm. than the impermanent. Well, that's order. A, that is a very good question, and it has exactly the same cause as all of the other suffering. Its cause is attachment, attachment to wanting things to be different than the way they are. The cause of existential suffering is wanting things to be different than the way they are. Wanting there to be a God, wanting there to be some source of meaning, wanting to be some intelligence somewhere that's laid it all out and everything happens for a reason and a purpose. It's our attachment to wanting that that is the cause of the existential suffering. So it's exactly the same as the cause of every other kind of suffering. Wanting things to be different than they are and being attached to the idea of them being different than they are. If I want gold, and I'm attached to the idea of having gold, when I don't have gold, I suffer. If I want a universe that is logical, rational, purposeful, has an end, designed by some brilliant consciousness, If I want that, if I don't find that, I'm going to suffer, and that is existential suffering. But it's only due to the fact that I'm wanting it and I'm attached to it, that I'm making myself suffer because it isn't that way. But isn't we say that we all looking for the meaning of our life and and find out why it's the purpose? Well, this is a little bit of a digression, but as it turns out, since the meaning of the life isn't something from outside that you can look for and find, which is actually a kind of dualistic view, is that I'm me and I'm real, 
and there is a God or a Brahman or a creator or somebody else, and that being has all the meaning. And if I look hard enough, I'm going to find that meaning, and then I'm going to be happy. Oh, you mean the meaning is that mean? Is not not the that life? The like answer is that the search for meaning outside your own consciousness oh, I see. is the mistake. Okay, but but still need to search for inside the consciousness. Yeah. But you're not going to find a meaning inside that came from anywhere else. You make the meaning of your existence. Okay. Your meaning has no, your life has no meaning except for the meaning that you give to it. I see. Mm -hmm. Okay. But is With, that suffering too? Is the I give the meaning and the, that would be suffering? The idea of wanting a meaning to be there independently from its own side. The meaning of life is empty. There is no meaning of life from its own side. There is no meaning of life independent of our mind's projection of it. That's what emptiness is. Emptiness mm -hmm. is that things do not exist from their own side the way they appear to be. Meaning of life is empty from its own side. Mm -hmm. Okay? But just as everything else has a kind of existence for your own mind. All the meaning you ever need is there, but it's not from its own side. It's from your side only. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the thing that I attached to at one point that said, man is that he may know joy. So I've used yeah. that as a mean. And that, and that is, that is uh, you know, there are a lot of things like that that hold such profound truth. I mean, anything that's really profound, anything you can say in half a dozen words or less that holds profound truth, you have to dive into in a deep way to touch that truth. But it's there. You know, the way I like to put exactly the same thing you use days. You said, man is to know joy. It sounds very noble. I say, we're just here to have fun. <laughs> 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 means exactly the same thing. And it gets ultimately, if you take it deeply enough, past our superficial interpretations of what it means to have mm. fun, if you take it deeply enough, it is a really, really profound truth. It is the answer to the existential dilemma. We're just here to have fun. Man is to no joy. <laughs> yeah. And the Buddha realized that. See, the, the, uh, we can, we can, there's, there's so much more that we can elaborate on, on this thing, but just to, to ground the little bit that we've talked about as solidly as possible, if you look at the Buddha's life, the Buddha was uh, of the warrior class. His dad was a feudal lord of a small fiefdom in northeastern India. And it was a time in India's history where there was a lot of, of affluence. There was a lot of surplus. Agricultural, agriculture had produced a huge surplus. And so you had these little fiefdoms. And whoever was the, the ruler, the king, chief, whatever you call it, enjoyed huge abundance of everything. 
but they entertained themselves by constantly attacking each other, and they all maintained standing armies, both for defense and so that if they decided to see if they could take over the next kingdom, that they could. The Buddha was born the son of this kind of a chieftain. So he enjoyed extreme luxury, luxury for the times at least. I don't think he had HDTV. But <laughs> extreme luxury as he grew up. He was groomed to replace his father as the warrior chief of this kingdom. And in those days, the reason that, that the, the reasoning behind all of the uh, benefits to being the king is that the king was responsible for his people, for the happiness and well-being of his people, to protect them from having somebody from the next kingdom come and take things away, to make sure that you know there wasn't too much in the way of robbing and killing and stuff like that, to impose laws. So the so the ruler had a lot of responsibility towards his people. The Buddha grew up in this sheltered, affluent, luxurious life. And one of the things that's accounted uh, that is recounted is is that he woke up one morning after a night of debauchery, and all the courtesans are laying around, half undressed, snoring, with saliva dripping from their mouth and things like that. This is the description, and he was. He just thought it was all disgusting. And then he was confronted with sickness, old age, and death, and realized that for him, for everyone, that you know this was inevitable. Sickness means not just an infection, but all of the different kinds of injuries and suffering that the body is prone to. And then there's old age, and then there's death. And for himself, I think he was very aware of the existential dilemma. He, he, he got married. We don't know how much he wanted to get married, but it was very important that he get married, and he get married to the, to the woman that would seal the greatest alliances between his father's kingdom and somebody else's, so he got married. And he had a child, and I can't help but think that in his mind, it's this, what is the point of all of this? So now, I've, now I'm about to take on all this responsibility for all of these people that I can't possibly live up to. Um, we're all going to get sick, old, and die. Here I am, married, this child is born, and let's see, he's going to grow up, get sick, and die. What is the meaning? What is the point of this? So he had in his mind, I think, all of these kinds of suffering really clearly. And the question is, is you know, what there's got to be a way out of this. And that's why he left home. And he followed. The, the, the sickness all laid in at deaths were three or four messengers. And the fourth was seeing uh, an ascetic monk in robes. Uh, and so he left home left this kingdom behind, left all of these things behind, and some people might think this was a great sacrifice, but I don't think so. I think he was he was trying to get away from this. It wasn't, it, it wasn't that, oh, well, I'm this noble person on the search, so I have to give up all this pleasure. Not just <laughs> no, I, it was like, 
holy hell, I'm, no, I'm not going to do this another day. I am out of here and nobody's going to stop me. Yeah. And so he went and he studied with the most renowned teachers of his day, Alara Kalama and Dr. Ramaputta. And they were following uh, a major trend in Vedic thought in those days, which we talked about earlier, that, that the belief was that you were on this endless cycle of rebirth. And what a dreary thing that you're, that you're going to go through this. I mean, if you're aware of the existential dilemma, all that makes it worse is that you're going to have to keep going through the same thing over and over and over again. And so the goal, the goal was to escape from the cycle of reincarnation, to achieve Brahman, was thought to be how this was achieved, and these spiritual teachers that he went to claimed to have found the answer, the end of samsara, the end of suffering. And so the Buddha went and studied with them, and he learned, from, from the first he learned, the jhana practice is through what's known as the base of nothingness. And the idea of this practice was that if you entered this jhana, and you spent long enough sitting in the jhana. For, for one thing, it wasn't. It didn't hurt that the jhana itself was was a sublimely pleasant way to pass your time. But in terms of the real goal of the path, as they saw it, that when you entered into this jhana of nothingness, you were actually experiencing the union with Brahman. And if you did enough of this in your life. When you died, you would achieve final union with Brahman and you wouldn't be reborn. So his first teacher, and he mastered those teachers and he sat in the, in the jhana of nothingness. And the teacher said, great, you know, you understand all the doctrines, you understand the method, how about you and me, we'll, we'll, teach, we'll teach all my students together, you'll be my fellow teacher. And the Buddha said, you know, I wasn't looking for something that's going to solve my problems after I'm dead. I'm looking for an answer to, this, to the problem of suffering in this life. So, nice as it is to sit in jhana with you, and as appealing as the idea is that if I do it enough, I won't get reborn and have to go through this whole thing again, it's not what I was looking for. He went to his next teacher, who went to the next higher jhana, which was the base of, of neither perception nor non-perception. And he mastered that as well, and all the teachings that go with it. But the underlying principle was the same. You sit in this jhana, and not too shabby a way to pass your life, letting other people feed you, and you sit in these blissful jhanas, and then when you die, you'll become enlightened. And he said the same thing to that teacher, who actually offered him to, you know, here, take all my students, you, you be the guru. He said, no, thank you, that's not what I'm looking for. And he took up the practice of asceticism, because by this point he realized, I think he had realized that suffering is the mind's reaction to the pain that is inevitably part of the world. He'd gotten that far in his understanding of things. And there were these schools who practiced extreme asceticism with the idea that they were going to overcome 
the mind's reaction to pain by enduring it. And so for several years he practiced these extreme austerities, all designed to bring the mind to the point where it was immune to physical pain, so that you could stand on one leg, staring at the sun, lay on a bed of nails, not eat. Oh, some of the things he describes are really far out. Not breathing. He would hold his breath until he thought his head would explode. All of these things are the attempt to try to use the mind to transcend the tendency of the mind to struggle against physical discomfort and generate suffering. The Buddha himself described it as using the mind to crush the mind. So he spent several years doing the practices of using the mind to crush the mind. And he came to the conclusion, this is not working. I, he said in his own words, he said, there has never been and there never will be anybody who has given this more of their best effort than I have. No one will ever practice these austerities to a more extreme degree than I have. And it did not work, and it's never going to work. So he decided to quit and try something different. So at that point, he was trying to decide what to do, and he remembered an experience that he'd had as a child. We've all had absorptions which jhanas is a kind of absorption that happens in meditation. And he had experienced an absorption as a child while his father was doing a plowing ceremony. And he he knew all about absorptions because he'd already practiced the jhanas with the foremost teachers of the time. What struck him when he remembered it, though, is the joy he felt. And he said, could this be the answer? My gosh, I think it is. This joy that is not from the senses. And so then he went and he practiced. Now I think the clue that you you can see the clue that he got here is that that the suffering and the happiness both are not due to things outside. They're due to what's happening inside. And that the source of joy, the source of suffering and the source of joy are both from within. So he had figured that out before he sat down under that tree. He knew really clearly that that all of the mental suffering is created by the mind itself, and if I can only find out how and why the mind does this, I'll have a chance of achieving my goal. Not only that, I already know that the mind itself is able to create its own joy and happiness. That joy and happiness are not dependent upon things outside of the mind. And and actually what he had learned at this point, partly through the way he was raised and partly through his practice of austerities, is that, that the source of happiness is not outside that there is no amount of wealth and pleasure and things like that is going to ever bring you happiness. So now he had all the pieces coming together. He had, I think, I think before he sat down, he had the first noble truth knocked out. The question was, what is the cause of suffering? And remember, the flip side of the cause of suffering is what can be the cause of 
perfect happiness. When there is no suffering, it's blue. And that's what he sat down and found out. That's what he discovered. Which is what brings us, you know, later on he taught the Eightfold Path, which is part of the Four Noble Truths, and he discovered that suffering comes from craving. It's from wanting things to be different than the way they are. And when he taught the Second Noble Truth, he didn't say, and the cause of all your suffering is craving. If you read what he said, he said that, but that was just the beginning. He said, and if you let go of craving, the suffering will disappear. And he gave an instruction. An instruction is, and the instruction was, to practice doing that. When you find yourself suffering, find the root of the suffering and let it go. And if you do, the suffering disappears. It may come back again a moment later, but the suffering disappeared. That this confirms for you that you indeed know what the cause of suffering is. It is wanting things to be different than the way they are, and being attached to them being different than the way they are. And if you let go of that attachment, and if you accept the way things are, however long you do that, whether it's for a second, two minutes, five minutes, half an hour, you're going to be free of whatever that particular suffering was that was being caused by that particular attachment that you let go of. That is the second noble truth. The third truth is that he had found a way to the complete and permanent cessation of suffering. Right, you can go through your whole life with so many different kinds of suffering coming at you and trying to identify how, what it is that I'm attached to and let go of it, you know, and all it's going to do is give you momentary vacations from the suffering of life. The third noble truth is, hey, you know, that just gives me a headache thinking about it. There's a way that you can get there and stay there permanently. And that's that's where the no-self comes from. But he figured out the craving part of it. Suffering is due to craving. It's due to desire for things, for something that isn't, or it's due to aversion to something that is. Craving is, is wanting things to be different. So he had that figured out. And he had figured out that it was absolutely all happening in here and if you let go of that attachment it would go away so the question really is well, why does my mind keep doing this and he went a little deeper and found that it's because I believe I'm a separate self or my mind believes it is a separate self and so and, and my mind believes that happiness and pain come from outside. Happiness and suffering come from outside. And so my mind does what's logical. Since it is a separate self and its happiness and suffering are dependent upon self-existent things out there, it keeps wanting things that it doesn't have or wanting not to have things that it does have. So he found that the root of craving Desire and aversion are rooted in delusion. And I'm going to stop using the word ignorance, which is what avidya is usually translated as. And in English, ignorance means the absence of knowledge of something. And that is not what the Buddha meant by the word that's being translated as ignorance. He meant delusion. It's believing you are something you are not. 
believing the world is something that it's not, and believing that your happiness and your suffering come from an interaction between those two imaginary things that does not exist. That's ignorance. So he realized that if you can overcome ignorance, then you can overcome craving. And if you can overcome craving, then you will have achieved the complete, perfect cessation for all time of suffering. And that was the third truth. And the fourth truth, which I'm not going, I'm going to spare you today. The fourth truth <laughs> is how to get from where you are to there. <laughs> which is the subject of your book. Yeah. Right? In part. Okay. But in terms of in terms of what Buddhism really is, and in terms of what the Buddha really taught, these things that I've covered with you this morning are absolutely unmistakable. There can be no confusion anywhere. The confusion comes with in terms of the, the third truth, the complete and final cessation. Some people say, well, there's no way that we can make, well, there's no way we can overcome this confusion. I tried and gave up, so there must be a Buddha and a Buddha who will do it for me. That's where the confusion starts. But up to this point, this is solid, indisputable, every form of Buddhism. They differ in terms of the fourth noble truth, how you get there. But it's all the same. Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering he thought that suffering is due to the mind's rejection of what is and attachment to what it imagines. And that that behavior of the mind is rooted in the erroneous belief in the reality of the self and the reality of the world as it's perceived. So in every school of Buddhism you're going to find those things, without exception. Yes? Now, I have a two questions. I ask each one. Okay. Then, the, if the second noble truth talk about the cause, mm -hmm. and the Buddha realized uh, that is um, um, is the mind, you know, you know, cause the suffering. Yeah. Okay. Then, what's that? Uh, the jhana practice he he experienced for for the two teachers yeah. helping for this because it sounds like if realize that is a mind and how the jhana practice play in role to helping. This. Well, uh, yeah, I, I have to because I'm not sure I'm. So, are you asking? Because the Buddha went on, spent the rest of his life teaching people to do jhana practice. Are you asking why and how the jhana practice helps? Yeah, because you see, the the when he sat down the tree, uh, before that he already. I see thoroughly for all the suffering, right? And that, and the, the, then he sat down is uh, find out what's the cost of the the suffering. Yeah. Okay. So sounds like uh, uh, from I hear from you is cost that is pretty much he get a conclusion is all oh, because it is my my thinking and cost of the suffering. Thinking. My attachment, my yeah, yeah. wanting, and the my behavior of the mind of attaching and and wanting, desiring is the cause of the suffering. Yeah. yeah. So so if 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 the others say that if the mind is not wanting and not mind is not that, then we're no suffering. Right. right? 
That's right. Okay. And my question is that, is, I, I just don't understand, because he tried so, so, so many years and mastered the jhana practice, mm -hmm. but still not, not get understanding for the suffering and, and, and that. Yeah. And, and then, uh, then my question is that, then later on practice that, but seems like at those years, he is practicing jhana, even though get into such deep jhana, he cannot understand that. Yes, so, right. so what's the oh, okay. the what's the difference between the jhana that made what's him that helping to, he to yeah? What, for, what's the difference between the jhana that made him enlightened and the jhanas he practiced before? Yeah, because I almost see my this my okay. want to pursue the jhana, yeah. but but seems like a, go through the, the Buddha's the, the. This is a very important question. It's so important. I'm going to answer it, even though we've gone over time. A very important question. The jhanas, as an absorption, don't necessarily involve uh, introspective awareness, right? Okay. They don't necessarily. And the jhanas that the Buddha learned, the idea was get to the deepest state of jhana as fast as you can. And so he was good at it, so he got there. And if you get there as fast as you can, you don't learn anything along the way. And if you haven't previously learned to have awareness, especially introspective awareness, your chances of learning anything along the way are just about zero. You know, it's like if you were going to go from here to L.A. and you were looking through a little tube and all you could see was the road so that you could tell when you got off the road, you could get to L.A. from here. But you'd have no idea of what was in between. And that's exactly the way they were practicing the jhanas. What the Buddha taught that was totally different. You see, he was approached by a Brahmin who asked him and said, Okay, so you know, what how how can I become enlightened? And the Buddha told him, practice the jhanas with mindfulness, with with sati sampajana, with introspective awareness, looking at your own mind. It's not getting to the jhana that's important. It's everything that you learn along the way. Um, and when he describes how Sariputra became enlightened, how, how Sariputra became an arhat, practicing the jhanas, he said that Sariputra examined the mind before jhana, in jhana, and arising from jhana, and noticed the difference. And he moved on to the next jhana, and noticed before and during, and noticed the difference. It is the practice of introspective awareness in the jhana, before the jhana, and after the jhana that reveals the truth. Let me put this a little differently. The first thing that he realized, not even through practicing it, but through recollection, was that there is joy and happiness that has nothing to do with anything outside of you. That was, that was the realization. When he had practiced the jhanas with these other teachers, there's no question he experienced joy and bliss. But he didn't notice that, oh, there's something special about this. This comes only from my mind, has nothing to do with anything outside of that. So this was an important clue. And so by practicing the jhanas with mindfulness, and 
if anything, the Buddha, when he sat down under the tree, he was not... You see, the way they practiced the jhanas before, it was like a ritual. The magic, it was magic. The jhanas were fun to do, but the whole point was you were going to have this magical thing happen after you died. It was about magic. And the Buddha knew that didn't work. So when he sat down under the Bodhi tree and practiced the jhanas, he wasn't waiting for some magic to happen. And I'll just say the point that all of those meditators out there in the world who sit down to meditate waiting for some magic to happen, they can do that for another 10,000 lifetimes. There is no magic that's going to happen. The Buddha sat down under the Bodhi tree and said, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to watch what happens. And that's where the answers came. That's how he came to know the things that he taught. The cause of suffering is my mind's reaction. The cause of happiness is my mind's non-attachment. And why does my mind why does my mind keep attaching and why does my mind keep reacting this way? Oh, it's because I believe that I'm the separate self. So the difference between the Buddha's practice of jhana that he, by which he became enlightened and Udaka Ramaputta and Alara Kalama, his teachers that you learn from, is the Buddha practiced with satisampajana, with with introspective mindful awareness, what we're calling metacognitive introspective mindful awareness, observing what was really going on. The result of that observation is insights, a lot of little aha experiences, seeing how things really are and contemplating that and then looking again to see what else you could find. And those insights are what resulted in, in his being enlightened. So our, uh, the, the jhana price we are practicing now uh, adds for the, uh, the, uh, the, the awareness. Beside that, we also uh, kind of looking for insight during the, uh, the jhana practice. Is that right? Well, that's right. You, you don't have to look for the insight. You just have to be looking. If you practice jhana and you're in a state of observing rather than just getting lost in it, mm -hmm. the insight's going to come. Mm -hmm. Reality's there all the time, in every mm -hmm. minute. Mm -hmm. the, the most perfect ultimate reality you could ever wish to know is right here in this instant. And the jhana, if you are in the jhana and you are in a state of awareness, it's going to pop out. The insights are going to start to pop out. So, let me address that to see if I understand clearly. So, the practice jhana is now, you know, I want to go to first and second and third jhana. It's not that. It's the in the process and you know, how exactly. I observe the things. You know, the, the go to which stage of the 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 the, the jhana is exactly. not not that important than the pro process. That's for, right. for, for looking and observing, keeping observing, doing that. Right. Then what inside will come and, and, and the, the awareness will increase. Right. Is that right? That's right. Oh, okay. That's right. It's not about, you know, going from here to Los Angeles. It's not about getting to Los Angeles as fast as you can. It's more like go back and forth between Tucson until you really know every inch of the way. When you know every inch of the way, go from Tucson to Gila Bend back and forth until you know every inch of the way. That's why you practice the second genre. And then you you go back and forth from Hila then to Blythe until you understand every inch of the way. That's like mastering the third jhana. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so forth. That's that's how you practice the jhana. Mm -hmm. 
It's not, well, I'm going to get there as fast as I can, because you're going to get there and you're not going to be anywhere different than where you started. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sophia has questioned that uh, she realized the the um, the string entry and uh, and having the uh, first jhana is different. Okay, it's not equal. Uh, but his her question is that if the person get to the string entry, it, is that mean that the 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 person have to uh, uh, already already achieve the the first. Uh, for practice master the first jhana? No. Practicing the jhana is a good way to achieve stream entry, but you don't have to. But when you achieve stream entry, it will become very, very easy to practice jhana. So, so a stream, if, if, if someone has never practiced jhana, never entered jhana, after they become a stream entrant, it will be much, much easier after that. So which way for us to aim to the String entry first will be better, or or, or entry the, the stream entry. Entry <laughs> 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 the jhana will be. <laughs> well, your your aim should always be at the. You should always be aimed at the insight that will make you a stream entrant. But you know, it's like the practicing the ten stages. You can become you you can achieve insight at every single stage. It's always possible. And you could achieve stream entry before you got past stage three. It's possible. But if you finish stage three and you haven't achieved stream entry yet, do stage four. If you have have sanata and you haven't achieved stream entry yet, practice jhana. If you've mastered the first jhana and you haven't achieved stream entry yet, Practice second jhana, but yeah, your goal, your goal is to achieve the insight that leads to awakening, and all of these other things, including you know I'm, I'm talking about samatha and jhana, but including, you know the noting style type style of uh, vipassana practice and Goenka style of all of these things, doing Mahamudra in the Tibetan tradition, practicing tantra, they're all just ways. If you practice these ways, to help you have the insights to bring you to awakening. Okay. Thank you for that question.